to where we find the Passover first recorded in Exodus. And then we see a lot of parallels with the, the Exodus. God's people are kind of moving from civilization into the wilderness. They're in bondage. God's leading them to freedom. God's providing leadership. God's providing for his people's needs in the wilderness. So there's a lot of overlaps that we're, we're seeing. The most important thing that the sign points to, I think, is fairly obvious. It's pointing to God's ability to provide and specifically to Jesus' ability to provide. What he provides is going to be a, a significant thing that we're going to be looking at in the next couple of weeks. So I'm going to go ahead and read this, and we're going to look at the feeding of the 5,000 again from a slightly different perspective than we did before, and then we'll continue on. So chapter 6 opens. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is, the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs that he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, It would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a little bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up, Here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in the place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed uh, to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they, um, had all they wanted, or when they all had enough to eat, he said to the disciples, Gather the pieces that are left over, and let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces uh, of the five barley loaves that were left over by those who had eaten. So since this is our third time looking at the text, we're going to be looking at this uh, from a slightly different perspective than we did before, but, and I'm going to be uh, a little bit more brief, but w one of the things that kind of stands out is that John is emphasizing you know, um, several points that, you know, um, John's going to be cautious about what he includes. Uh, if he's putting something in, there's a reason for it. And one of the things that he seems to emphasize is Jesus testing the disciples um, and the disciples not being able to provide for the crowd, and then Jesus does provide, provide for the crowd. One of the disciples correctly assesses that it would be impossible to buy enough bread to feed this crowd. Another takes inventory of what's available. And I, I think that his response about the boy with the five loaves and the two fish is, he's probably saying something to the effect that I've looked. All the food that's available to us is a few loaves and fish. We don't have anything resembling enough to do what you're asking. It's impossible. I, I think that's probably what he's saying. And the point is that by not looking to God for provision, but only thinking in earthly terms uh, about the task that was from Jesus, they failed the test. Um, how should we apply this? What's, what's John trying to communicate by including this details, by including this test. Um, we're restarting potlucks, which I'm very excited about. And th there's a sign-up sheet to try to organize this to make sure that we have enough tables and that we you know, you know, are going to have kind of the right distribution, not too many desserts, not too few main dishes and things like that. Um, you know, is, is it right to be organizing that and kind of 
planning that out. Um, another thing that kind of came to mind is that you know, several years ago when we were considering buying this building, the elders put together a 45-minute long presentation where they went through in significant detail the, the finances, you know, why it was that the elders had researched this carefully and thought that this was a financially sensible and financially appropriate way for our church to proceed. Is that what Jesus is, is Jesus trying to teach that that wasn't the right approach? I, I certainly don't think so. Um, the, I, I think to, to get at what Jesus is trying to communicate, let's think back to what this sign is uh, trying to point to. We live in a world that's starving spiritually. You know, people chase after different religions and different philosophies, and they're, they're trying to find meaning in life. They're trying to numb the effects of sin. But whatever the world uh, has to offer, whatever they can find, it can never fear, spiritually fill one's stomach. The world is desperately hungry, and there's nothing in this world to feed that hunger. Jesus has called us to feed the world. What do we have to offer? Um, you know, in, in terms of the picture of this miracle, we probably don't have much more than five barley loaves and two fish, uh, which is not up to the task. There's no earthly way that we can accomplish what Jesus has asked us to do. But God takes our efforts and he multiplies those. You know, the church has grown and spread over the centuries as God has taken those efforts and multiplied them. Again and again, people that we don't imagine could come to Christ do come to Christ and their lives are, are changed. Uh, the gospel has spread over the, the entire world against Im impossible odds. You know, people have come to Christ and they've found the food that satisfies. And I think that's what this miracle is specifically pointing to, that provision. And I think when it comes to much lesser problems, we do approach those sensibly, the way the elders approach the purchase of this church. But it, um, when it comes to, to feeding spirit, people spiritually, we need to depend on God for that. Um, I'm going to go ahead and move on to the next uh, section. This is starting in verse 14, and it will continue to verse 21. After the people saw the sign that Jesus had performed, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the lake, where they got into a boat and they set off across the lake for the Sea of Capernaum. By now it was dark, and Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing, and the waters grew rough. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Then they were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. Personally, I find this to be the hardest of the traditional seven signs in the Gospel of John to make sense of. Um, why, it, why is it included? And the reason that I say that is that John doesn't seem to deal with the, um, the ramifications or the response to this sign the way that he deals with the others. And if you look through commentaries and sermon series, there's a minority, at least, that will actually say that this isn't one of the seven signs that John has. Everyone agrees that there's seven signs in the Gospel of John, but they don't always agree on what those seven signs are. <laughs> um, and it, it certainly doesn't follow the, the pattern. Um, and I, I would uh, say that there, there are a couple uh, things that this sign does that are, are important and necessary that 
um, I, I would look to. The, the first idea is that Christ uh, provides for his people, especially those in the ministry. Uh, and this, you, you can certainly see that you know, he's watching over them and uh, protects them from the storm. But another thing that we can see is that this is kind of offering a balanced view of what following Christ is like and what ministry is like. Um, if we just had the feeding of the 5,000, we'd kind of be you know, seeing a mountaintop experience, but we wouldn't be seeing... Uh, other parts of the, the Christian experience as well. Um, you know, if, if we just look at the, uh, the feeding, we see a picture of following Christ where Christ does meet our needs in a very spectacular fashion right away. You know, the di- disciples would have called that a mountaintop experience. God's power was evident, and they would have every reason to be bold and confident, but the Christian life isn't always like that. Sometimes it's dark, and you know, when we, whenever we encounter darkness in the Gospel of John, um, it actually is dark when, you know, the, these events are taking place, but that's not why John points that out. He's pointing it out uh, to give us a picture that there's some sort of spiritual darkness at, uh, that is present at that time. Um, and you can kind of contrast that, for example. John is careful to point out when the Samaritan woman encounters Jesus, it's broad daylight, and that's because she sees the light right away. Um, one thing to look at is that Jesus is present. He's perfectly aware of the situation. He's going to intervene, but the disciples don't have any tangible way of seeing that. From their perspective, they're in serious trouble, and they can't sense uh, Jesus' presence or protection. Uh, and um, it, you know, we, we're going to you know, face the same thing in a spiritual sense, storms where we don't see Christ, but Christ is there. Uh, just as he was for the disciples. He's watching over us, and he's able to calm the storm and bring us to our, to our destination. Um, so with that, we're going to be focusing for the next couple of weeks on the response of the crowd to the, uh, the first of the, the signs, at least, the feeding of the 5,000. And so I'm going to read 6 through, uh, verse 22 through 40. We're probably not going to quite finish that up this morning, but we'll see how far we can get. The next day... The crowd had stayed on the opposite side of the shore of the lake, realized that only one boat had been there before and that Jesus had not entered it with his disciples, but that they had gone away alone. Then some of the boats from Tiberias landed near the place where the people had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. Once the crowd realized that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and they went to Capernaum in search of Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. 
Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. I'd like to start by looking at the crowd. And if we kind of look through this and think uh, about the, you know, the actions and the motivations of the crowd from a human perspective, most of what we see looks very positive. Um, the first one that we see is that they've followed Jesus into the wilderness. And that might not quite catch our ears the same way that it would catch the ears of someone living in the first century. If we were to go in the wilderness, we would probably get there in a vehicle. We'd have the, the ability to, to haul hundreds of pounds of stuff that we could take care of ourselves pretty well in the wilderness. And if we got into trouble, we could drive back. <laughs> um, that would not be the way in the first century. You had to carry everything you needed, food, water, uh, everything. And you'd, you'd need to walk hours to get there. It, it's an undertaking to do that. The point that I'm trying to make is that following Jesus into the wilderness to hear him teach, I think it shows a real interest and a real commitment. And it would be one thing that the hypocritical Pharisees you know, don't uh, accept the teaching of Jesus, but this crowd is impressed with the teaching, Im impressed enough to, uh, to follow Jesus someplace. Um, the, they also see significance to Jesus, we, and we, we see that in following him in the wilderness. But they, they say that you know, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. And they're referring to a prophet that Moses spoke of you know, towards the end of his time leading the people of God. This is recorded in Deuteronomy 8, 15 through 18. I'll go ahead and read this. We've talked about this before. But Moses records, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on this day of the assembly when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see his great fire anymore lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers and I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak all that I command him. The you know, Jewish people recognized that this prophet that's foretold hadn't risen yet. Yes, God had sent a number of prophets, but none of them had quite matched Moses. And there, was, there wasn't one that really stood out from the crowd in the same way that Moses stood out. And so this is seen as a prophecy of at least a great prophetic figure that would come. Now, there was disagreement uh, among different Jewish scholars. Is this the same figure as the Messiah, or is this another uh, figure that might rise up at the, uh, at the same time as the Messiah? Was this referring to John the Baptist or was this referring to Jesus? I think the majority opinion was probably that it was referring to the, the Messiah, but that um, isn't clear. Uh, at least it wasn't uh, a, a decided question uh, to, to kind of Jewish scholars at that time. I, I would say that this crowd seemed to see the prophet and the Messiah as one and the same, uh, just from looking at chapter 6. The, the point, though, is that they certainly recognized that Jesus was not 
not just a prophet, but he was something more than a prophet in the Old Testament tradition. Um, they, and I think they, they saw a very distinct possibility that he was the Messiah, at least as they pictured the Messiah. Um, once they learned that Jesus had left that area, they immediately followed. They were pursuing Jesus. They wanted to be with him. And they wanted to hear more from him. That certainly sounds positive. Um, when they found him after that he had kind of left this crowd, their, their tone is polite and respectful. They, they're interested in how he was able to get where he was without a boat. Um, and the, I don't see any problem with the question that they ask, except it's the wrong question, as we're going to see. And the last one, I think, really stands out to me. But they wanted to make him king so badly that they were willing to force the office on him. And, you know, this is certainly a mixed response. You, you shouldn't tell someone that's sent from God what to do. But there's certainly at least some positive aspects to it. And it really does show, I think, a remarkable degree of faith in, in who they thought Jesus was. The reason that I say that is that if I were to say to you that I don't like a particular politician and I think we should have a better politician in office, not much harm would come from me from saying that. If someone in the first century were to say, we don't think Caesar's doing a great job, this guy would be better, they would get crucified for that, no question. Um, th this is uh, treason. Um, it's open rebellion against the, the Roman Empire to, to push someone else's king. Um, the Romans were tolerant as far as totalitarian empires of, of that day went, but not when it comes to anyone interfering with their authority. And so th this is real zeal on the part of the crowd to, to even suggest this. Um, so looking at what we see about the crowd from a human perspective, it's hard to see very much that's negative at this point. Um, if we look carefully, especially with your kind of knowledge that we have from the other parts of the Gospel of John, we'll see it. But um, I, I, I want to show the positives first before we, you see Jesus' response, which is immediate. He uh, didn't accidentally leave this crowd. And when they catch up to him, he immediately points to the wrong motives that they have for following him. Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. The ultimate reason is that Jesus sees their hearts and he sees their internal motivations. There's one thing that we haven't come back to that might have stood out, and that's in, in verse 2 of chapter 6. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. And in the Gospel of John, it has become more and more familiar with the, the Gospel, that always strikes an ominous note whenever we see someone following Jesus because of the, the miracles, um, because it, it always suggests a wrong motivation in, in following him. Um, it, it's always a red flag. It, Jesus, with, with, with his perfect knowledge of the human heart, sees clearly even though it might be hard for us to, to catch that if, if we were in this crowd. Um, so we're going to look at 22 through 25. I'll go ahead and just reread this. I was hoping to have a projector today, and my computer and the projector are not on speaking terms this morning, so I'm going to see if I can 
uh, get my computer to decide it wants to talk to that projector next week. I'll see if I can figure out why it's not going to uh, talk. But previously in the Gospel of John, we, we've seen the same thing. Um, in John chapter 2, verses 22 through 25, let me just read that. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them. It's literally, he did not believe in them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. And so there's a crowd that has an apparently positive response, but Jesus uh, recognizes it as a, a wrong response. And it, again in John chapter 4, verse 43 through 45, after two days he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his, in his hometown. So when he came to Galilee, Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen that all that he had done in Jerusalem for the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. And we talked about that a little bit last week. Um, you know, there, there was a warm reception, but it wasn't a reception that honored Jesus for who he was. Um, it was a reception, in fact, that, that dishonored him. One of the commentaries that I read by someone named Andrew Lincoln, I think, did a good job of summarizing this. This is a familiar Johannian theme. The people have, in fact, seen the signs with their own eyes, but they have not seen them properly because they failed to see past the external sign, which in this case was their filled stomachs, to the reality to which it points. To see properly would not be to remain content with the merely earthly benefits supplied, but to believe in Jesus as the source of all life. Um, <clears throat> so in this initial exchange, we see uh, the crowd ask a, a question. Uh, they're, they're asking Jesus how he got there. Does Jesus answer that question? No, he ignores it. Um, and I think the reason for that is that if he had told them that I walked on the sea, they probably would believe that, but that would be getting them focused again on the signs. And that's not going to be helpful. That's going to make the situation worse, not better. So Jesus ignores the question, and he goes immediately to uh, the, the important question. Why is it then that, that you're getting excited about the idea that God might have sent a prophet, perhaps even the Messiah, who's able to miraculously need a basic and, meet a basic and important need wrong? What, what's, what's wrong with the, the excitement that the crowd ha has? And you know, we do need to kind of think about this from a first century perspective. Today, you know, our, a, a typical person might spend, I should look this up, but maybe 10 or 20% of their income on food. You know, housing, transportation, entertainment are you know, often significant or even more significant expenses than food. In the first century, 80% of your income would have gone to food if you were kind of a working class individual. Um, so that, that's a, a much more significant need. And a lot of people would not consistently be able to afford as much food as they would have liked to eat. They would have ended some days hungry because uh, they couldn't afford to buy quite as much as they would have liked. And that doesn't mean that they were starving, just doesn't mean that they got as much to eat as they would have liked, sometimes at least. So they, they, they would have known hunger, and so you, Jesus' ability to provide that need would have been a more significant thing for them than it would be to us. Um, but regardless of how important that, that need is, it's not their fundamental need. They needed right standing with God. They needed their sins covered. 
They needed to be able to love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. They didn't perceive that need, and they certainly didn't perceive Jesus as someone that could meet that need. Um, if Jesus had provided more food, they would have happily eaten that without desiring anything further from Jesus. And it, at least for me, it's hard not to see Cain uh, there, where, where you know, he valued a bowl of stew that he could eat right now more than his birthright. Uh, that was something that was intangible and down the road. He wanted something that was there in front of him that would meet a, an, an immediate need and a, and a felt need. But just like Cain was kind of blind to the value of the birthright that you know, was, was there for him, um, you know, th this crowd is also blind to what Jesus, I think, is really offering. One of the applications that I think someone asked a really insightful question last week about is you know, that right now one of the things that's very fashionable in Christianity it would be something uh, that you might, you might call the seeker-sensitive approach. Or it goes by other names too, but the idea is to get people into church by appealing to felt needs. Um, you try to find ways of presenting Christianity in a more appealing manner. And this approach has been remarkably successful in producing very large churches and in growing churches that apply it more. Um, if something is wrong in your life, Jesus can fix it. How do our verses help us to evaluate this? And Jesus is immediately rebuking the crowd for following him for the wrong reason. It's easy to uh, fill seats by presenting Jesus as a Messiah that will get your financial affairs in order um, or will help you have a better family or will help you to meet personal goals, overcome addiction, reform politics, or whatever other worldly hunger people might be keenly aware of. Presenting Jesus as the Messiah that the crowd wants will fill seats in the megachurch, but those people don't have interest in what Jesus really provides and the actual Messiah that we see revealed in Scripture. And you, you often will get, if you take this too far, you know, a mix of authentic biblical truth and practical wisdom. The real danger of that isn't that it doesn't work, but it does in terms of meeting felt needs. And I would say that because we could look at completely Christless forms of religion. Um, it wouldn't be hard to, to pick examples that do not present Jesus as who he is at all. So the, these are completely false religion, but people that become involved in those can turn their lives around. I, you live in a neighborhood that has a lot of people from one of those religions, and it's a very nice neighborhood because of that. I, you know, people from that religion make great neighbors. But um, you know, that it isn't, they're, they're um, far more significant need of uh, peace with God and knowing God isn't being met, even though uh, you kind of a mix of biblical truth and philosophy has kind of worked to take care of their secondary uh, problems. Um, fundamentally, this approach to Christianity is seeing Jesus as a, as a means to an end, but, but nothing more. He's not a treasure that's buried in a field that when we find it, we would happily sell everything that we have in order to possess that treasure. Um, it's a Jesus that we don't really need to know in a deeper way simply because he's worth knowing. Um, in fact, the specifics of the Jesus um, that are offered without the gospel aren't so important. Um, it, and then that's kind of the difference between you know, real Christianity, which puts Jesus first, and 
your Christianity that's applying Christian principles to um, worldly problems without teaching enough of Jesus for people to come to know Him. And I, I wouldn't say that every aspect of the seeker-sensitive movement is wrong. Um, I think it, it's a dangerous overemphasis in a wrong direction, but I think we could look here and we could see that Jesus did feed people with bread, but He did that to point to something better. He, he met a felt need, but He didn't continue to do that. He, he, he only used that as a means to lead them to try to explain who He is and, what he, and, and the, um, the reality that He offered, not just the picture that He offered, which is the sign of the feeding of the 5,000. And one of the dangers with that is that you know, as you're bringing in unbelievers to a, a church by presenting stuff that appeals to unbelievers, the, it becomes more and more difficult to present the gospel in an authentic way to that church without losing two-thirds of the congregation. And as the church gets bigger and the building becomes larger, it becomes financially dangerous for that church to do that. It, um, it actually gets in the way of uh, preaching of the gospel. Um, so let's uh, look next at verse 27. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has set a seal. <clears throat> the crowd had followed Jesus looking for another meal. Remember back to Exodus where the Israelites were to collect manna every day because it would perish by the next day. So the importance of that detail is actually becoming clear. Uh, you know, that might not have seemed like a particularly important or meaningful detail now, but I think it's not an accident that Jesus is saying, don't work for the food that perishes. I think he's helping us to understand um, that you know, receiving uh, bread from God is, isn't enough. We need to receive something to feed on from God that won't spoil. Um, the fact that the man is spoiled tells us that God has something better to provide. The bread that Jesus fed the crowd wasn't good enough either. As ordinary bread, anything left would have spoiled after a few days. Um, you could eat it, and it sustains life, at least for a time. Eventually, though, you still get old and die no matter how much bread you, you have available to you. Um, you know, bread, you're just like the manna that sustained God's people, is a type that should point us to what we really need from God. By type, I mean it's a picture that's pointing to a, a deeper reality. Um, we get this real bread from Jesus according to this verse, and as we'll see, Jesus is the bread. Um, how does this connect with the crowd wanting to make, the, make Jesus king that we saw back in verse 15? And so we just read that at the ending, right after Jesus had fed the crowd, they wanted to make him king. Their, their goal is obvious. Someone that can perform such a miracle you might be the Messiah that they were so earnestly seeking. You know, they were looking at the Old Testament prophecies, uh, sorry, Old Testament pro promises of an eternal everlasting kingdom, of reestablishing David's throne and a messianic golden age. They understood the Old Testament promises in a more literal way than uh, a Reformed perspective would look at. I'm not going to take the time to do this, but if you're really interested in this, one of the very last studies that I did I spent about 10 or 15 minutes in the opening looking at a lot of the Old Testament promises that you know, talk about a king. And if you're an oppressed people, 
you're living under the thumb of an empire and you, you've seen these promises, you, that's the part of the Old Testament that you're going to be really excited about and looking forward to that Messiah that's going to come and you know, usher these things in in a literal way where there's a, a, a literal kingdom. Um, but I, I think the crowd isn't seeing past that. There, there are several levels to this conversation, I think. It, at one level, you know, the discussion's about bread, but I, I think the crowd is actually interested in more than just bread. I, I think that they are interested in Jesus as that king that's going to bring in their picture of uh, the, the kingdom that's promised in the Old Testament. Now, their picture is far smaller than what God wants to provide. Their picture is basically a, you know, a Roman Empire where the Jews get to do unto others as unto others have been doing unto them for the last few hundred years. Um, Jesus is providing and has provided a, a kingdom that is far more than that. <clears throat> and one of the things that I, I will point out is that the text emphasizes that there's 5,000 men there. And we might think, well, wait a minute, why not point out that there were 12,000 or 17,000 people there? Because that's a more impressive meal uh, to provide. Uh, and that sounds like it would make the meal a little bit, or the, the miracle more impressive to have you know, a larger number of mouths to feed. But I think the emphasis is on that number 5,000, which in the Roman world was a legion. It was an army. Jesus had an army in front of him. And this, if Jesus were going to establish a, a literal physical kingdom, this would have been a great opportunity, opportunity to, to do that. Um, so anyway, with, with that uh, Jewish expectation that the Messiah would establish a physical kingdom in mind, you, how, how are we to look at Jesus' imperative? Do not work for food that spoils. And I think that earthly kingdom that the crowd wanted isn't something that would last any more than bread would last. Maybe it would last for a longer period of time. But Jesus is offering something better. He's offering an eternal kingdom of God's people dwelling eternally in the very presence of God. The meaning of eternal life is far more than simply living forever, but um, it, it includes that, but it's enjoying the life as God intended life to be. Jesus is telling them not just to work for another version of the Roman Empire where the Jews get to be in charge. He's telling them to open their eyes to something that's infinitely greater that he's offering. But he's, this crowd is so excited about their picture of what the, the Old Testament prophecies point to in this limited picture. Um, that they don't have a taste for a Messiah that is merely going to deal with the sin that separates them from a holy God and that condemns them with God's perfect judge, uh, justice, but they instead are, their heart is set on this kingdom. Another thing that's worth pointing out is what Jesus means by, uh, on him the Father has set his seal. And you know, this is an expression that we don't really use for very much anymore. Seals can mean several things. You know, a seal might mean that you know, something is uh, sealed until it's opened, but I, I don't think that's what's being pictured here. In the ancient world, if you got a document, you would want to know if that document was authentic or not. And um, the, the way that an important individual would authenticate his documents is they would dip a little bit of wax and that individual would take that person's seal on a ring and stamp it into the wax. And that would be kind of a one-of-a-kind seal that would authenticate the document and say that it's real. It doesn't make the document real, but it provides evidence to someone receiving the document that it's real. And that's 
uh, what Jesus is referring to by, by the seal here. Um, if the crowd had listened carefully to Jesus in verse 27, um, should they have interpreted Jesus as telling them to work in the first place? If you look, the crowd is constantly going back to works and what are you going to do? And Jesus is trying to point them away from that and point them to belief and trusting in God. And you, Jesus emphasized that, emphasizes that in the very first thing that he says, you do not work for the food that perishes, but work for the, uh, f the food that doesn't perish, which I will give you. I'm uh, paraphrasing because I don't have the verse right in front of me. Um, and it, it's telling to me that they don't seem to uh, pick up on your Jesus trying to emphasize that he's giving them a free gift, but they keep coming back to this idea of working for something. Another question, the crowd is requesting another sign, and why does, not, why, why does Jesus not offer another sign? And I think that should be fairly clear. You know, Jesus' uh, previous miracle was ineffective at producing faith. Another miracle, I think, would have made the problem worse, not better. Um, but I think if Jesus had done that, he, he would have been feeding into the crowd's uh, you know, ideas about a physical kingdom. Uh, even more rather than the spiritual kingdom that he's trying to open the crowd's eyes to. And another reason is that Jesus won't be controlled. You do not tell Jesus what to do. And you see this consistently in the Gospel of John. Jesus is going to do what Jesus is going to do, regardless of what the crowd asks for. Um, when the crowd states, they, they quote scripture, they say, you know, um, that. You know, Moses gave the Israelites a bread in the wilderness. Jesus corrects them, and he, he does it in a strong way. Truly, truly, I say to you. And so he's saying, this is important. Pay attention to what I'm about to say. Um, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. So why is that important? Why is it important that it wasn't Moses that did this, but, but God? Why is it important to kind of correct a detail in how they looked at this Old Testament event. And I, I think that Jesus is trying to alert them to an important difference between what they just saw and what they know from the, the Pentateuch and from the book of Exodus about the previous sign of the manna in the wilderness. Um, with the previous sign, you know, there was a real need for hunger. Moses prayed to God and God provided. Uh, Moses didn't have anything to do with the manna coming other than interceding to God and praying to God. Jesus provided the bread himself. Um, and so Jesus is saying, I am something far greater than Moses was uh, by providing the, the, the bread himself rather than asking God to provide the bread um, the way that Moses did. I think the last thing that I would like to, to look at, um, what's Jesus trying to communicate when he uh, calls what the Father will give true bread? And there, there's a few different possibilities. One is that Jesus is teaching that you know, manna is a type, you know, something that provides a picture of a greater reality, and that's certainly true. Um, and so by, by saying true bread, he's saying that you know, the uh, physical bread that I passed out is just a type of something greater that I'm going to give. 
Um, but I, I think there's something more than that. And to appreciate that, we have to understand Greek thinking at, at the time. Um, and you know, be, because of Alexander the Great several hundred years previously, Greek culture had spread throughout the world. And so you know, Jews in this period would be familiar with Greek philosophy, even if they didn't accept everything of it. But some of these ideas would be familiar. Uh, Plato had an idea about true forms. Um, and what he uh, postulated, and, and this idea was very important in Greek thinking, is that someplace an ideal column would exist. And architects would try to design different columns that they would resemble this true column, but they would never be as perfect as what a true column is. And the fact that you keep trying to make different columns uh, and you know, try you know, different ways of um, you know, setting the proportions and choosing the stone, you, you realize that there's something that a column should be and you're trying to get closer and closer to what that is. Um, and with, with that in mind, you know, there, there is a true bread that exists. That true bread would properly do what um, ordinary everyday bread kindest sort of does, and that is that everyday bread sustains life, but not perfectly. You get hungry again that afternoon. Um, you, you have to keep eating it, and even then it only sustains life for a, a time. Eventually you get old and die, uh, no matter how much bread you have to eat. True bread should sustain life indefinitely and perfectly. Um, and, and that's the point I think that, that Jesus is trying to make by talking about true bread. So that brings us to, I am the bread of life. <coughs> Excuse me. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall not thirst. And that's where we're going to start next time because I'm out of time. I think we do have time for one quick question. Yes. After Jesus walked on the water and got in the boat with the people, it says immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Now, mm -hmm. it doesn't say anything about, about these people saying, wait a minute, what just happened here? I mean, <laughs> that they're out, mm -hmm. out on, the, on the lake and, and all of a sudden they're on the shore. Wouldn't, wouldn't somebody be asking themselves, we just, this, Jesus must be a deity because nobody, no man could perform this kind of thing, mm -hmm. not even a prophet, you know, mm -hmm. the prophets were, did some pretty amazing things, but yeah. this was way beyond anything a prophet ever did, mm -hmm. and uh, that's just an observation. They don't, they don't, the scriptures don't tell us what the reaction to that was, but it must have been very puzzling. Yes. <laughs> like if I'm just suddenly transported to some other place, I'd be freaked out. Yeah. Yeah, so you're certainly right that you know, there's a lot in John that is consistently pointing to Jesus' deity, and I'm not pointing out all of it. I sure. didn't really dwell on that particular part of that sign, if it indeed is one of John's seven signs. Um, but you know, one of the, the most important points to John is to make the case that Jesus is God, and uh, that point is made again and again and again and again. Um, but... 
you know, I, I think that an, another point is that, you know, as spectacular as the miracles are, as much as they could only come from God, that John is trying to help us to see that what we can't see that Jesus does, forgiving sin is a far greater miracle that, and a far greater accomplishment on Jesus' part than you know, a miracle that we could look at and have our you know, uh, you know, jaws just drop in amazement. Okay, I'll, I'll go ahead and close this in prayer. Differently, Father, thank you for being uh, the real bread that sustains us, for coming from heaven, for showing us the way to know you and making that uh, possible by your death on the cross. I pray, Lord, that we would see you as real bread and that we would be encouraged to feed on you more and more. In Jesus' name, amen.